Welcome to the Creditors Bargain Podcast. This is a show where I discuss corporate insolvency law with guests who are academics or practitioners from different jurisdictions. I'm your host, Akshaya Kamalnath, a senior lecturer at the Australian National University College of Law. In today's episode, I talk to Professor Aurelio Gurea Martinez, who is an assistant professor of law at the Singapore Management University and head of the Singapore Global Restructuring Initiative. We discuss two of his papers. The first is Insolvency Law in Times of COVID-19, which was published in The Company Lawyer in 2020. The second is a brand new paper available on SSRN. It's titled The Future of Insolvency Law in a Post-Pandemic World. I've made links to both these papers available in the show notes. Hi Aurelio, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me here. Thanks. It was so good to read both of your very topical papers on one was about what to expect post-pandemic, the earlier one, while we were in the middle of the COVID crisis and all countries were coming up with reforms. You have a paper that brings a lot of comparative perspectives in one paper, so that was great. So just to get us started off, can you talk us through what you think the role of insolvency law should be in a pandemic like the most recent one? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, actually, at the beginning, most regulators and policymakers around the world were concerned with the fact that because of by a variety of reasons, including lockdowns and therefore the inability of many companies to generate cash flows, so these companies would become insolvent. And therefore, in the absence of any financial support or any legal uh, mechanisms to, to support these viable but financially distressed firms, many viable companies would end up in, in liquidation. So that's why you know, many uh, countries consider the adoption of a variety of legal financial responses, including insolvency responses, to basically prevent the early liquidation of these viable businesses. And something that was discussed during the pandemic as well was the, the role of insolvency law, as you have mentioned in, in, in the pandemic. So, and actually in, you know, on the one side, on the one hand we have in, in the United States, particularly some authors arguing that bankruptcy or insolvency law is, is not the problem, but actually the solution to help many viable firms facing financial trouble. But then we have other authors such as Professor Anthony Casey, Professor Christine Van Sitten and, and her co-authors saying that no, bankruptcy and insolvency law is not the right tool to deal with systemic distress, which is what we are facing in, in times of COVID. Well, in my view, I am kind of in the middle. I think that insolvency law can indeed perform a valuable function. And in order to, to, to answer that question, I think it's important to remember the primary goals and functions of insolvency law, which is something that you have already discussed in, in some of the fantastic podcasts that, that, that previously held in, in this fantastic game. So in uh, my view, I think insolvency law should do basically two primary things. One is to reduce the loss of value associated with a situation of financial distress, because once a company becomes insolvent, value is destroyed because you know employees and lenders and suppliers might not want to, 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 
to do business with the distressed debtor because creditors can initiate enforcement actions against the debtor and that can destroy going concern value. The debtor is unable to borrow and therefore is unable to pursue value creating investment projects. So those going solvency law provides a variety of tools to minimize this loss of value. For example, by providing an automatic stay or a moratorium, we will reduce the destruction of value associated with enforcement actions by the creditors. By providing deep financing provisions, we will prevent this underinvestment problem associated with companies unable to borrow and therefore unable to pursue value-creating investment projects. So that's why this is the primary, one of the main functions of insolvency. And by doing that, insolvency law will minimize the destruction of value meaning that we will maximize also the value of the company. And that's going to be good for the debtors. That's going to be good for the creditors to maximize the buy available for distribution. And that's actually going to be good also for the employees and other stakeholders. Some companies can remain viable and can be kept afloat. And the second goal of insolvency law is to allocate the debtor's assets efficiently, in my view. That means that if the assets are worth more together, then insolvency law should provide the right tools to make sure that the company will survive. But if the assets are worth more in, in other alternative uses, then insolvency law should make sure that those assets are efficiently allocated towards other productive activities. So that's why what insolvency law does is, first of all, to distinguish these firms that are more worth alike, which is what we generally refer to as viable firms. And if it is a viable firm, then insolvency law will provide a variety of mechanisms to promote the effective reorganization of these companies, such as the use of a majority rule, the use of cram down provisions, a moratorium. So that's why in that context, if we think about the COVID-19 pandemic, we can actually see that insolvency law may play an important role in preventing the destruction of value on the one hand, so the first function, and the second one is also providing the right tools to help some uh, viable but financially distressed firms to kind of sort out their financial trouble. So that's why insolvency law, long story short, can indeed be useful in times of COVID. But what's the problem? The problem is that we might not have the institutional capacity to handle the wave of insolvency cases potentially arising from the pandemic, especially in emerging economies and, and countries with a, a weak institutional framework. Also, another problem is that insolvency law is also very costly. So insolvency proceedings, for example, some studies show that on average, the direct cost of insolvency proceedings are between 3-4% of the value of the firm, and that costs are even more burdensome for MSMEs, for micro, small and medium-sized enterprises. And the indirect cost of insolvency, according to some studies, are between 10-20% of the destruction of value in a situation of financial distress. So that's why an insolvency solution is a very costly solution, even a luxury for, for, for many firms. So that's why governments decided to intervene by providing a variety of mechanisms to try to avoid uh, a wave of bankruptcy cases First of all, because that can overwhelm the judicial system in many countries, but also because of the limitations of insolvency law to deal with a situation of COVID distress. And I like your middle 
path and what you explained about viability and that that takes me to the next question because i was going to talk about how some countries have introduced like a complete stay or freeze on starting insolvency proceedings as one way to avoid costs so my next question was going to be because your paper does like a really good comparative study of different reforms in different countries so i want to ask you to take us through some of that but also what i feel like i know the answer before i ask you and, and you'll know why because uh, when you hear the question i want to ask which country do you think got it right and i feel you're going to say singapore knowing uh, your stand on previous uh, talks and discussions even beyond your paper so i'll, I'll leave you to answer that <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, yes, indeed, Singapore has been one of the countries adopting a more comprehensive response, but not the only one. Also, Germany, for example, even Australia has taken some reasonable steps as well. We have also some emerging economies such as Colombia in Latin America has implemented an ambitious and comprehensive response to COVID. But when we analyze the desirability of the response, especially to, to deal with COVID distress, I think it's also important to distinguish two different stages of the pandemic, or even three stages. I mean, in my latest paper, I, uh, I distinguish three different stages. One is the hibernation phase of the pandemic. The second is the recovery phase of the pandemic. And then I refer in my paper to the future of insolvency law in a post-pandemic world. So that's why I think that the, the, the desirability of the responses should be analyzed separately depending on the stage of the pandemic. So many countries, for example, adopted very comprehensive responses in the early stage of the pandemic, in the hibernation stage, but then they didn't do anything in the recovery phase. So that's why the overall strategy of the country probably failed if they manage to, to, to adapt to the new phase of the pandemic. So what do I mean by hibernation phase? Well, I mean that when COVID started, then the priority for most regulators was to put the economy into hibernation, again, to prevent also this wave of, of bankruptcy cases of many companies overwhelming the judicial system and ended up in liquidation because of the limitations of insolvency law, because of the limitations of the institutional framework, etc. So what are the key insolvency related responses to deal uh, with this situation and to achieve this uh, uh, hibernation policy? And I emphasize insolvency related responses because there are other non-insolvency related responses. I mean, providing financial support to financially distressed firms affected by COVID is one possible solution. But there are some insolvency related responses to, to, to isolate this company, to protect these companies and to help them stay afloat. And basically most of these responses are the suspension of certain creditors' rights, for example, to initiate insolvency proceedings of their debtors if they are unable to pay. Most of these uh, rights were suspended, for example, in Singapore, in Australia, in many European countries as well, in the United Kingdom. So that's why creditors' rights were usually restricted or during the temporarily suspended during the pandemic. Also, in many countries, directors are subject to a duty to file for bankruptcy to initiate the insolvency proceeding. This is a rule mainly existing in Europe, in continent. So, of course, all of these countries decided to temporarily suspend this rule. Otherwise, it's not that the companies facing financial trouble and they will use the bankruptcy system. It's that the legal system forces them 
to file for bankruptcy. Otherwise, in some countries such as Germany, directors can be even exposed to criminal liability for uh, failing to file for bankruptcy within three weeks since the company became uh, insolvent. So that's why the law in Germany was temporarily amended in Spain, in other countries with this duty to file for bankruptcy to try to avoid that. Because again, the purpose is this try to keep uh, the economy afloat still outside the insolvency system. So many countries also relax or temporarily suspended their groundful trading or insolvent trading provisions. So Australia was one of them, the UK was one of them, Singapore was one of them. And then other countries such as India went even beyond all of these kind of responses and decided to almost suspend the, 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 the bankruptcy system itself by not even allowing debtors to, to use the, the bankruptcy system. So I was a kind of surprise, but I guess you probably know more than me about <laughs> the rationale behind this. I guess it's because probably the government expected, you know, a, a wave of bankruptcy cases probably overwhelming the, the, the insolvency system in India. And that's why they probably decided to, to, to come up with something to try to avoid this problem, even though that solution probably did more, more, more harm than, than good. But when assessing the desirability of the responses, I think, first of all, it's important to distinguish the stage. And Australia, Singapore and Germany were countries where they clearly and, and quickly moved to the second stage of the pandemic. Because, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, COVID is, is, is far from over. So, and, and life continues and, and we need to, to, to continue with our lives. Also, governments have limited financial resources. And also we cannot be, you know, artificially keeping the economy afloat through financial support and the preservation of zombie companies. I know that in some of your fantastic uh, podcasts also, uh, you have had some speakers referring to the concept and, of zombie companies. So Australia, uh, Singapore and other countries were aware of this problem. That's why they decided to move quickly to the second stage. And that requires different responses. The first one is actually to lift all of these moratorium and suspensions that were adopted in the early uh, stage of the pandemic. So that's why Singapore, uh, Germany and, and Australia decided not to extend the suspension uh, of creditors' rights to initiate insolvency proceedings and this relaxation or suspension of growthful trading. Uh, Germany didn't extend the, 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 the suspension of the duty to file for bankruptcy. But many other countries, uh, such as Spain, for example, or France or the Czech Republic and, and, and many other European countries still kept those suspensions of directors' duties, etc. So that's why they, did really, they didn't really move to, to the second stage. While countries like Australia, Germany, and Singapore not only decided to not to extend those suspensions, but more importantly, they were very actively promoting new reforms and new responses for the promotion of recovery. And recovery broadly understood. So if a company has remained viable after COVID, after the first stage of the pandemic, we need to help them achieve uh, a debt restructuring to emerge from COVID with, you know, a healthier financial structure. But the, unfortunately, the, the company became sometimes non-viable because of COVID. Then what we need to do from a policy perspective is to promote a quick exit 
to this company and therefore a quick liquidation. And that's actually what Singapore did. Singapore actually implemented something called a realign framework for the adjustment of certain contract and determination of contract without paying uh, penalty fees in, in, in certain situations. And also Australia and Singapore decided to adopt a simplified insolvency framework for SMEs. Because as I mentioned, the insolvency system is very costly and even more for small and, and medium-sized enterprises. So that's why Australia and Singapore worked uh, very hard and very quickly to adopt these new frameworks. In Australia, it's a framework that has been implemented on a permanent basis. In Singapore, it was originally implemented until the middle of this year, 2021, but it has been extended until 2022. And in Singapore, because many SMEs cannot afford the procedure, also part of the procedure is subsidized by the government, part of the fees, uh, the professional fees charged in the procedure. And actually the whole purpose of the procedure is to provide a quick and affordable solution to either reorganize MSMEs or to liquidate MSMEs and to reallocate the assets efficiently. Germany, for example, didn't adopt the simplified insolvency framework, but also something interesting that they did, which is something that the UK also did and the Netherlands, is to accelerate some of the restructuring and insolvency reforms that they already had in their political agenda. So many European countries are currently implementing the European Directive on Preventive Restructuring Frameworks. So what Germany and the Netherlands did is to accelerate the implementation of the directive. And the directive actually envisions a new restructuring framework, which is very similar to the enhanced scheme of arrangement that we have in Singapore. It's very similar to the new restructuring plan in the UK. So it's a, a, a hybrid procedure with many of the tools generally found in a chapter 11 organization procedure, but still with minimal uh, involvement of courts. So uh, Germany and the Netherlands thought that in the recovery phase of the pandemic, something interesting is to accelerate the adoption of these tools to provide uh, an effective restructuring tool for viable companies. I think that's uh, the right uh, way to deal with the recovery phase of the pandemic. But the problem of that is that that covers only part of the problem, which is helping viable firms. I don't think that solution helps the other part of the problem, which is probably going to be the most significant ones, which is to help non-viable firms to provide them with a quick exit. And this is even more problematic in the context of MSMEs. So that's why many countries are currently considering the adoption of simplified insolvency frameworks. And in fact, I mentioned that not only these advanced economies that I mentioned adopted these comprehensive responses. In Latin America, Colombia adopted even already in the early stages of the pandemic, a simplified insolvency framework for MSMEs. Colombia adopted new rescue financing provisions for companies. Colombia adopted also some hybrid restructuring mechanisms to avoid the costs and the problems associated with judicial uh, reorganizations. So that's why already in the early stage of the pandemic, Colombia adopted some tools that are actually very relevant also for the recovery phase of the pandemic. In fact, Professor David Skill from the United States mentioned that one of the most important insolvency tools that was used in the first stage of the pandemic is the use of a moratorium. And actually, it's a moratorium broadly understood. This is 
uh, kind of related what I was mentioning about the suspension of certain rights and the existence of different moratoriums to stop creditors' actions, etc. And then he also mentioned in a second paper that he wrote us on COVID and, and the coronavirus, mentioning that in the second stage of the pandemic, the use of rescue financing provisions is probably uh, the most important tool because now we need to focus on recovery rather than hibernation, which is what the moratorium does. So that's why the Colombian uh, response, I think, was relatively uh, innovative, was very comprehensive, and actually I think it should be, uh, uh, you know, a kind of a reference for other countries, particularly emerging economies. Yeah, I, I actually found that part interesting in your paper where you speak about Colombia. Uh, in fact, where you were talking about India going the extreme direction of totally suspending the code and uh, not sure why they did that. Apart from expecting a huge wave of insolvencies, I think it was also the fact that there weren't enough rescue finance mechanisms and options available. Anyway, thanks for that comprehensive answer. I was just baiting you when I asked the question and suggested Singapore, but I agree that there's a lot of interesting and quick reforms coming from Singapore and, as you said, also Australia and uh, Germany. But it sounds from your answer that actually a lot of reforms with the SMEs the, in Europe implementing the European Restructuring Directive sounds almost like COVID has been an opportunity to implement things that would have been great uh, to have. So it's accelerated those reforms. So just along those lines, we have been talking about rescue options and similar options in various countries. So specifically in uh, the COVID crisis or any such big systemic shock, what role do you think these sort of mechanisms have? Yeah, so again, I think that in a situation of a pandemic, the role of restructuring mechanisms and insolvency law broadly understood is somehow limited. I mean, this is what people like Professor Anthony Casey and, and, and Professor Christine Van Sitten and others have pointed out. And I agree. And especially in countries without efficient insolvency frameworks, either because the law is not attractive or because the institutional framework is not attractive. In fact, also in some research that I've done in some emerging economies, I found that actually they have an attractive insolvency laws and also an attractive institutional frameworks, which is the, the worst possible scenario. So in those cases, actually using the formal insolvency framework can end up doing more harm than good. So that's why in those scenarios, what can regulators do? Well, I, in those cases, I am more in favor of promoting out of court restructuring and enhancing maybe what some people refer to as hybrid procedure, which are the type of restructuring mechanisms uh, adopted in, in the UK in Singapore and the European Directive. Also, even Australia is currently revising uh, the scheme of arrangement to see if the scheme of arrangement can be improved to maybe uh, by adopting a moratorium or some other tools, which is actually what Singapore considered some years ago to enhance the scheme of arrangement to become a more uh, powerful and a more attractive restructuring tool. So that's why I think that restructuring procedures will play a very important role. 
but we need to be aware that many countries don't have the institutional development and capacity to deal with these procedures. So that's why we might need to favor more out of core restructuring and workouts. Also, the, the role of restructuring is going to be limited in the current situation and the post-pandemic world because restructuring, as I mentioned, only deals with part of the problem. I mean, in the whole universe of insolvent firms, we have some insolvent firms that are viable and some insolvent firms that are not viable. So restructuring only deals with those that are viable. And in fact, if the restructuring procedures are available to those firms that are not viable, then we have a problem. This is something that Professor Michelle White, for example, has been you know, writing about and, and criticizing already for several decades which is the, the, the role of insolvency law and the errors potentially created by insolvency law if insolvency law reorganize non-viable firms or liquidate viable firms. So that's why insolvency law should serve as a filtering mechanism. And something that some authors have pointed out, for example, Professor Jorge de Mueller, when the European directive was enacted, he said that many non-viable firms are going to use the restructuring framework provided by the European directive. Because, I mean, nothing will prevent them or there aren't many mechanisms to prevent them from using that. So why not try, even if I am a non-viable firm? And not necessarily in bad faith. I mean, sometimes they try because they might not even know that they are no longer viable. Even in my, in my previous life, uh, as a pre in practice, I mean, when dealing with, with debtors, I mean, uh, none of my clients ever said, oh, yes, my business is not competitive, it's not viable. So yeah, all of them thought that their business is super competitive, super viable, but they are just temporarily facing some problems. So that's why even in good faith, because continuation bias, this is something that the behavioral literature psychologists, behavioral economics have explored different biases that people uh, face and they are attached to their pre-existing choices. They can be also attached to the business because it was founded by their grandparents or whatever, and they don't want to be the generation like destroying the business. So there are many factors, even lack of resources to obtain a professional advice to determine the viability of the business. Mm. So that's why it's not necessarily in bad faith but there will be many non-viable firms trying to use this restructuring framework. So that's why I think that we should, when implemented insolvency reforms in the post-pandemic world, it's important to equally consider the other side or the other group of, the, uh, of companies in the universe of insolvent firms. And those are non-viable firms. So that's why it's important to provide uh, good mechanisms to prevent the opportunistic use of restructuring procedures by these firms. Otherwise, value is going to be destroyed at the expense of the creditors and society as a whole. And also, it's important to provide these firms with an attractive liquidation framework and an attractive exit. So that's why I think that regulators should be focusing uh, on both restructuring and, and efficient liquidation at the same time. Mm. And Thinking now about, because you have referenced your 
post pandemic world ideas i'm thinking of your second paper now so you identify a bunch of trends there in that paper saying the, these are the trends that have come out of covid reforms and we can take lessons from that for the future and i feel like a lot of it is very useful to think of even in a non crisis situation so it sounds almost like we've had a lot of insolvency lessons in the pandemic and your paper is kind of summarizing that so do you want to give us like the short version of that yeah no absolutely thank you so much for for asking so yes what i did in that second paper is to identify uh, some trends and some policy discussions reshaping the future of insolvency law or probably reshaping the future of insolvency law and also what i mentioned is that the pandemic i think has help us our own knowledge of insolvency law i think we all have become even more comparative during the pandemic because we all have been exposed to many webinars we all have been exposed to many fantastic podcast initiatives to learn about insolvency law in many jurisdictions also initiatives such as the global guide by the world bank and the insol international by providing an overview of the insolvency responses adopted in certain countries then people can become indirectly aware of the insolvency framework in in those countries so i think it has been a very enriching experience and um, because it has been a very enriching experience some countries are wondering why other countries have that why other countries are doing that i am not doing this so that's why i think that these enriching discussions and policy debates have helped us think about or reconsider the desirability of many insolvency frameworks also there were some initiatives already in the political agenda of many countries such as the adoption of for example simplified insolvency frameworks for MSMEs so uncitral and the world bank have been already working on MSMEs and insolvency for a few years but because MSMEs represent the majority of businesses in most countries around the world and when i say most countries i really mean most countries i mean based on my research most countries have uh, 98 or 99% of businesses in the US in Singapore in Australia in, in most economies are MSMEs and so that's why it doesn't really matter advanced economies uh, emerging economies usually MSMEs represent the majority of businesses in most countries and if the insolvency system is very costly for them we need to do something Uh, and the problem has been exacerbated during the pandemic because many MSMEs are in that situation so that's why the world bank and uncitral have been accelerating their work on MSMEs and that's why uncitral has recently approved some legislative recommendations for the adoption of simplified insolvency frameworks the world bank a few months ago also published a new section on their uh, principles for an effective insolvency and creditor debtor regime including uh, new principles for MSMEs and insolvency so that's why a combination of factors including the fact that the pandemic has helped us rethink the desirability of our insolvency frameworks in other cases it has accelerated some reforms that were already in the political agenda and also because of all of this enriching discussions that we have had in the in the past uh, two years since the pandemic started i think that there are some trends that can probably be identified in most jurisdictions around the world most countries are moving in that direction and that's why they are expected to reshape the future of insolvency law which is what i try to emphasize in this paper and i identify four main trends 
One is the adoption of simplified insolvency frameworks. This is something that already started prior to the pandemic, already in the United States in 2019, in Myanmar in, in 2020. Also some other countries such as South Korea and others have some also rules dealing with, with MSMEs. But the pandemic has really been the, the triggering point for the acceleration of the adoption of these frameworks. Because since the pandemic started, we have seen Colombia adopting simplified insolvency frameworks for MSMEs, Australia, Singapore, Chile has announced that recently, Spain also has a bill on the table, also proposing a new system to deal with MSMEs in insolvency. India has adopted, as you know much better than me, a new system of prepacks exclusively available for MSMEs. So that's why the pandemic has accelerated this first trend. But this is something that was already a trend, but the pandemic has, as you mentioned earlier, accelerated this trend. The second one that started again long before the pandemic is the use of hybrid procedures. And hybrid procedures are generally those procedures that combine the advantages of workouts, purely contractual workouts, in terms of flexibility, confidentiality, low stigma, low cost, but at the same time, some tools generally existing in the insolvency legislation, such as a moratorium, a majority rule, for example. So these hybrid procedures became popular, for example, after the Asian uh, financial crisis, because after the Asian financial crisis, many countries in the region didn't have sophisticated insolvency and restructuring frameworks. So in the middle of that crisis, implementing a sophisticated framework is not easy. It's not easy to implement the law on the books, and it's even harder to, to, to make sure that it works well in practice because of the institutional capacity, because of the lack of expertise sometimes in the insolvency profession. So that's why what many countries did, including, for example, Indonesia, including the Philippines, including uh, Thailand, South Korea, and others, is to start to adopt some hybrid procedures, so some enhanced workouts, which is basically to encourage companies to conduct a, a workout, but because workouts have some limitations, for example, the debtor can be subject to hold out, probably creditors can still enforce their claims, and that's why debtors will need all the creditors on board in order to, to approve the plan. And that's uh, very difficult and very costly and can lead to holdout problems. So that's why a majority rule, for example, binding dissenting creditors can be helpful. Even a statutory moratorium can be helpful. So that's why some countries in Asia started to adopt these hybrid procedures. Then these hybrid procedures became very popular in Europe, particularly after the global financial crisis. So Italy, Spain, Belgium, France, and then also many countries in Latin America adopted many out-of-core restructuring, many out-of-core uh, workouts that were homologated or confirmed by the courts. So that's why, again, if you get certain majorities, you can get an agreement approved and can be binding on dissenting creditors. So that's why this type of hybrid procedures or enhanced workouts became very popular in Europe. And then these uh, hybrid procedures became even more popular with the adoption of the new enhanced uh, scheme of arrangement in Singapore, which is basically to use the, the, the traditional scheme of arrangement existing in most common law countries, but because of the weaknesses uh, of the scheme as a restructuring tool or the lack of enough tools to promote an effective restructuring, the lack of a powerful moratorium, the lack of deep financing, 
the lack of uh, prohibitions of ipso facto clauses, what Singapore did is inspiring the US Chapter 11 to include many of those provisions in the uh, Singapore scheme. So that's why this enhanced scheme is also a sophisticated or a comprehensive type of hybrid procedure. And in fact, this hybrid procedure, similar to the Singapore one, is the one adopted in the UK very recently, the restructuring plan in the UK, and also the framework in the European Directive on Preventive Restructuring Framework is a type of hybrid procedure in that direction. So that's why this trend already existed prior to the pandemic, but the pandemic has accelerated this trend. So that's why the second trend accelerated by the pandemic is the rise of hybrid procedures. The third trend accelerated by the pandemic is the rise also of workouts. During the pandemic, during both the hibernation phase and the recovery phase, many regulators and policymakers were encouraging companies and debtors and creditors to reach an out-of-court agreement because that can save the significant costs associated with insolvency proceedings, that can avoid the problem of overwhelming the judiciary. So it can be beneficial. And actually we say then the pie available for distribution is supposed to be bigger. So that's why uh, it's supposed to be beneficial for all the relevant parties, at least in the context of firms that are worth more alive than that. So these workouts, the problem is that, I mean, they need to be actively promoted. We cannot just say, yes, we need to promote workouts, but then we do nothing to effectively promote those workouts. So what can countries do? Well, so in the UK, for example, the Bank of England has been, you know, encouraging banks to use workouts with, with their companies. So this is the so-called London approach and the use of informal rules to basically uh, negotiate and out of court and to reach an out of court agreement. In Singapore, also the uh, Association of Banks of Singapore enacted some guidelines for workouts and these guidelines have been creating this culture of corporate rescue even outside the insolvency and restructuring framework. Many countries such as Japan, for example, even India, for example, for companies regulated under the Reserve Bank of India, if I'm not wrong, has a framework for workouts. The Philippines has also a framework for workouts. Many of these frameworks that we observe in Asia, frameworks that uh, come from the Asian uh, financial crisis. Because again, it was a scenario where companies are facing financial trouble massively. The system cannot deal with those problems because of the institutional limitations and because of the lack of attractiveness of the insolvency system in most countries in Asia. So that's why this uh, trend started then. But now in the COVID pandemic, we have seen that more countries are actively promoting these practices. And those countries that even want to promote workouts even more are considering also the adoption of some tax mechanisms, for example, to promote workouts, which is something that Singapore has done recently for companies subject to the Simplified Insolvency Program, which is the temporary insolvency framework for MSMEs. And this is something that other jurisdictions such as Thailand, for example, and Japan and others have done, I mean, to, to, to impose or to allow parties to enjoy some tax preferential treatments if they engage in, in, in this type of workouts. So that's why workouts is something that, yes, everybody agrees that should be promoted, but then many countries have not actively promoted this. So that's why the first thing to do is at least to enact some basic guidelines or informal framework and practices for workouts. And then countries that want to go beyond that and to promote workouts more actively may consider uh, for example, the possibility of giving some tax credits 
to creditors subject to haircuts, uh, debt forgiveness in an organization, or sometimes the debt forgiveness, the haircut is subject to taxes from the perspective of the debtor. It's almost like an income that is gonna be taxed because it's a debt forgiveness. So, mm -hmm. uh, so that's why what many countries are doing is that this income, this debt forgiveness is not subject to tax because it doesn't actually generate an, an actual generation of cash flows. So through this mechanism, workouts can be promoted more actively. And if countries want to go beyond that, then they can even adopt a type of a moratorium or something. And then the workout will become in a more enhanced workouts, almost similar to the hybrid procedure that I was uh, mentioning earlier. So the rise of workouts and to uh, take workouts more seriously is the third. The final trend identifying also during, also it's, it's far from new, because it's from the 18th century in, in England, but it has been adopted in the past decades in, in many jurisdictions and the pandemic has also accelerated this discussion, which is the discharge of debt for individual entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So the discharge of debt is far from new. Again, as I mentioned, the first discharge, if I'm not wrong, was adopted in England in the, in the statues of Anne in the early stages of, I think it was the 18th century. But many countries around the world don't provide an effective discharge of debts for individual entrepreneurs yet. So many advanced economies already provide this discharge. This is a problem mainly existing in emerging economies. And this is surprising because there are some empirical studies, for example, a study conducted by professors John Armour and Douglas Cumming, showing that countries adopting an effective discharge of debt for individual entrepreneurs actually promote more entrepreneurship because the discharge of debt serves almost like an insurance for the debtors or for honest but unfortunate debtors. You know that you need to behave well in order to be able to, to, to get a discharge of debt in the future if something you know, happens and your business is no longer viable and you become insolvent. So you can enjoy that discharge of debt. So that's why it can be good because it encourages good behavior ex ante. And at the same time, it will encourage more people to start a business because they know that if something uh, doesn't go as they originally expected, then they can uh, obtain a quick exit and they can start again. But again, unfortunately, we don't see this discharge of debt in, in many countries, particularly emerging economies. And the pandemic has also accelerated this discussion. The IMF, the world also, the UNCITRAL with the Simplified Insolvency Framework for SME has put a lot of attention on this aspect. Why? Because actually I mentioned that most businesses in most countries are MSMEs. But actually, we look at the data, most of these MSMEs are actually sole uh, proprietorships. So in other words, most of these MSMEs don't have a, a legal entity, a corporation supporting the business. So they are structured as a sole uh, trader, as a sole proprietor. And therefore, the entrepreneur doesn't enjoy the benefits of limited liability, for example, existing in a company. So that means that if these entrepreneurs become insolvent, they cannot get an effective discharge of debt in, in most countries, in many countries around the world, but particularly in most emerging economies. So this is a, a, a big problem. And that's why uh, most of these reforms on MSMEs and insolvency are putting the attention also on the importance of providing an effective discharge of debt for individual entrepreneurs as the whole package 
of adopting a comprehensive and effective insolvency system for MSMEs. And interestingly, the pandemic showed us that last year that the one region in, in China, Shenzhen, adopted a new personal insolvency regime providing discharge of debts for individual entrepreneurs. So traditionally, China has been very reluctant to this fresh start policy and this discharge of debt. That's why I think that it has been very interesting that during the pandemic, Shenzhen is exploring, uh, and if it works successfully, then this is a reform that can be extended to the rest of China. It's currently, Shenzhen currently allows individual debtors, individual entrepreneurs to, to have the access to this discharge of debt. So that's why the pandemic is showing some signs that it seems that more countries will uh, probably reconsider this policy uh, in the future. First, because many international organizations are pushing in that direction. And secondly, because the empirical studies are showing that this discharge properly designed in order to avoid moral hazard and opportunistic behavior. So that's why it should provide a discharge of debt only to honest but unfortunately debtors, not to any type of debtors, but properly designed, this can be a good tool to promote entrepreneurship and growth. So that's why this discharge of debt for individual entrepreneurs, I think is the fourth trend that is reshaping the future of insolvency law. So yeah, you mentioned so many, it's, it sounds like I've had a whole world tour with this final answer that you've given. It's really amazing. And even like a historical tour as well, right? You mentioned the Asian crisis, you mentioned the personal the discharge of personal debt, but it's, it's amazing how they're all linked and how the pandemic has drawn attention to it all. I should say you were talking about how the pandemic has got us to look more at comparative perspectives, speak to each other on webinars, uh, but I should say a lot of things that you were mentioning has come to my attention through your papers and through some of your the SGRI blog posts. So I think spe especially in our insolvency field, we've become far more global. So I think that's one benefit to academia to add to everything that you have said. But th th that was amazing. I feel like I've got two for the price of one in this podcast. <laughs> talking about both your papers. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very glad we could uh, do this. Thanks so much for your time. No, thank you. And you are very kind. Thank you for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to have the opportunity to chat with you, to learn from you and to support this wonderful initiative that you have launched. So congratulations. And again, thank you for having me on board.